welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and we have another excellent guest today. He is an ethicist, philosopher, medical doctor, researcher at Oxford University, and commentator on pro-life issues. It is Dr. Callum Miller. Thanks so much for doing the show, Callum. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I thought I'd launch in with a massive question, which is we often hear about this, where does life begin when it comes to the pro-life and abortion issue? I've always thought it's a potential life anyway. So in my little layman way, I never thought that was that significant. I thought, well, what are we really arguing about? It's going to be a life very soon anyway. But how do you approach the, the question of where life begins? Yeah, I think what we see is that this is often portrayed as like a religious question or a philosophical question or something to do with personal opinion. But for me, I think the reality is this is a scientific question. So biology literally just means the study of life. And we would expect that biologists could tell us about life. That's the main thing that they do. That's their job. And so when I was at medical school in Oxford, you know, it was pretty much uncontroversial learning about the beginning of the human body and the beginning of life that this was at fertilization. When the sperm meets the egg, you get two gametes, the sperm and the egg, with half of the genes that you need. And then they go together to form a zygote. And that gives you all the genes you need. And from that point, the only thing that's needed to grow into an adult is time, nutrition, and the right environment. And so for me, the reality is that this is when life begins. And I think this is a scientific fact. It's not a personal opinion. But to prove this, there was a researcher just a couple of years ago from Chicago. He's at the University of Chicago. And he said, let's figure out what the consensus is. And so he asked the public, when or who is the expert on when life begins? And he found that over 80% of them said biologists. This is a scientific question. So he then spoke to five and a half thousand biologists and he asked them, when does an individual human organism begin to exist? So he had to be a bit more precise because, of course, life in a general way began thousands or millions of years ago. But we want to know when does a new individual human being exist, one of us. And so he said, when does an individual human organism begin? And he found that 95% of them said at fertilization. So he asked them their political views, their views on abortion, and many of them were pro-choice. And he found that even of those biologists who said that they were very pro-choice, even 70% of those said that a human begins at fertilization. So I think the real question for the ethics of abortion is not so much when does life begin, but when does it begin to matter? Some people say that every human being matters from the very beginning. Some human beings say that only at a certain point does a human being begin to be a person, you know, something with human rights and that is equal to the rest of us. And that's only at some point in pregnancy or after birth or whatever. But the basic question of when a life begins for me is a scientific one. And I think science is actually really clear on the answer that it begins at conception or fertilization. Hmm, very interesting. And um, what do you make of this quote? So I've been going back and looking at um, Christopher Hitchens' views on pro-life because he was a lefty but he was pro-life which is quite interesting you don't hear that a lot these days and he said this really interesting thing he said um i put the question like this and this was in 1988 by the way he said you see a woman kicked in the stomach your instinct is properly one of revulsion you learn that the woman is pregnant who will reply that this discovery does not multiply their revulsion and who will say that this is only because it makes it worse for the woman i don't think this is just an instinctive or an emotional reaction not that we should always distrust our instincts and emotions either we are stuck with a basic reverence for life. So I was thinking about that. And I was also watching a reality show the other day where uh, the woman was pregnant and everyone was like, oh, brilliant, you're having a baby. And they're all happy. 
And then she had a miscarriage. And of course, they were all sad and she was crying. And I was thinking, you know, it's not just because it's sad for her. They say it's a baby then, but then suddenly it's not when, when we don't want it to be for abortion. So what, what do you think to that? Is there a sort of is there a sort of whimsical approach to when we, we say it's a baby when it's convenient and we don't when, when it's not? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really a matter of us kind of deceiving ourselves or saying what's convenient. I mean, the reality is in medicine, any of my colleagues, if they have a pregnant woman who wants the baby, will talk about the baby. You go on the NHS website, it says this is your baby at just three weeks after, you know, three weeks into the pregnancy. They don't even wait until, you know, the second or third trimester. They say this is what your baby is like at three or four weeks. Even BPAS, the UK's leading abortion provider, they will even post stuff on Instagram about Baby Loss Awareness Month, which is about miscarriage and the fact that miscarriage involves losing a baby. And BPAS themselves will say that this is Baby Loss Awareness Month, it's very important. So I think the reality is that deep down, everybody knows that this is a baby and that's not really controversial. But of course, that makes abortion a bit more problematic because it's ending the life of that baby. And so it's kind of inevitable, I think, in a culture where abortion is accepted by most people, that we have to try and get our heads around some way of reconciling the permissibility of abortion with the reality that in miscarriage, we say this is a baby that's been lost. And I think most people in society just haven't really worked through the implications of that and really thought, could that have implications for how we think about abortion? Or do you think they're both attempts to just be compassionate with language? Like if a woman's lost a baby in a miscarriage, you're not going to go, oh, you've lost a, a, a fetus or a clump of cells, calm down. And on the other hand, if it's an abortion, you're not going to walk in and say, well, oh, you want to kill your baby. So are they actually both just reflections of language and, and that, that don't reveal that much about the actual ethics of it? Well, maybe, but I think, you know, I think the, the natural instinct is to call it a baby. I mean, I think in a world that didn't have any abortion, I think we would always just call it a baby. Um, and I think it's, it's difficult to say that it's not. I mean, it's a human being. It's alive. You see the baby kicking on the ultrasound. At three weeks, the baby's heart begins to beat. I mean, there's, there's always a question of, you know, like, what exactly do you mean by a baby? And of course, you know, two days into the pregnancy, it's not going to look like a baby or like a human baby or anything like that. But, you know, the reality is that the science is clear. This is when life begins. It actually does develop much quicker than we think. At three weeks, the heart or two and a half weeks, the heart begins to beat. At four to five weeks, the baby begins to move. At six weeks, you can already measure brain waves from the baby. And so, yeah, you know, it doesn't immediately look like a newborn baby. That's just obvious. <laughs> like, um, I don't look like a newborn baby, um, but I'm still a human. We're still the same kind of thing. Um, and so for me, I think, you know, even if we argue about the terminology and when exactly is it right to call something a baby or a child, I think we can still be clear about when life begins and what the science shows about when a human begins. And a baby is just one stage of that life cycle. Maybe there's a stage earlier that we don't call baby. Um, but that's just the reality of human development. We look very different at different stages. We can do different things at different stages. But at every single moment, we're the same human being. And that's what really matters. Yeah. And it seems like the inconvenient truth is that the science just 
it just reveals more and more about how early development is. And you've said that, I mean, the heartbeat is three weeks, maybe even 16 days, I've heard you say. Uh, at seven weeks, the baby can hiccup and swallow. At eight weeks, 90% of the structures with a name like the heart, et cetera, are already in place. It can probably feel pain around 10 weeks. So that's all pretty stark stuff if you want to claim that, you know, if you're pro, pro-abortion. pro I mean, I'm going to try and be somewhat balanced and not let my views, you know, just completely make us agree too much. But um, what do you think to this point that is, is pro-life really a left-wing thing? Why is it suddenly a conservative thing? Because Christopher Hitchens was pro-life and he was a big lefty. And when I look at actually your story, you say it was about human equality to you that got you into this, which it sounds like quite a lefty thing. And you were studying various marginalized groups before you got into the pro-life subject. So I'm starting to think you're a lefty and you've realized <laughs> that this is really the ultimate victim group, which is what I've been waiting for the left to realize that the unborn child is surely the most vulnerable person in society. So why is this now a conservative thing when it could easily be a left-wing concern? Absolutely. I mean, I, you're right. I'm, maybe I'll have to leave the podcast shortly, but I, <laughs> I, I am kind of left wing on many things. And I'm, you know, some of my views are very unpopular among other conservatives on immigration, on the climate, all sorts of things. And even to be honest, when you look at voting, I think Labour voters are the most pro-life. Um, now that's of course because labor is a sort of strange mix of like <laughs> anti-Semites, <laughs> like left-wing environmentalists, socialists, and you know people with all sorts of different views. Uh, Muslims, uh, yeah. Um, well, exactly, yeah. I mean, Muslims are very pro-life in general, but they almost overwhelmingly vote labor. Um, yeah. So I think it's yeah, it's it's something that for me did come out of fairly left-wing convictions. Now I don't want to be too much of a caricature around this because I, you know, both sides think they care about vulnerable people and want to care about vulnerable people. And really, it's a disagreement about how the best way to do that is. But certainly, you know, the things that made me left wing in the first place, even if it's more complicated, are this sense of compassion for the vulnerable and the marginalized. And it was the same thing that got me into pro life stuff. So when I went to medical school, I was not pro life. But the more I studied it, the more I looked into this, the more I looked into the evidence, I realized that it was harmful to women as well as to the baby. And so, you know, when you look historically, it was basically Christians that made the world pro-life. Um, and Christians were the ones who also introduced orphanages. They're the ones who introduced charities, hospitals, did a whole load of stuff for human equality and for the flourishing of the most vulnerable in society. So at the beginning, Christians were the kind of left-wing progressive radicals. And now, of course, <laughs> they're seen as far-right fascists um, by, you know, by Nazi sympathizers, ironically. Um, so ultimately, this is something that I think naturally fits within a sort of progressive left-leaning worldview, as, even though it could also fit into a conservative worldview. And I think what has happened is that the sort of radical left so i consider myself you know left-wing on a bunch of things but there is such a thing as the far left and they're completely bonkers and what you've kind of found is that because the left-wing politics has just mutated into this sort of 
victim wars mentality that like the only thing that matters is how marginalized you are how much of a victim you are and that makes you automatically right and automatically validates your opinions they can't really figure out what to do when there are two oppressed or marginalized groups that disagree with each other or have conflicting interests. It's why you see they're having a complete civil war over the Israel-Palestine conflict, because they can't wrap their heads around the fact that Jews have historically been massively oppressed by virtually every society, but also the Palestinians who have been significantly maltreated are also a victim group and they're, they're at war with each other. And so I think the modern kind of radical left, just because of its focus on victim and who is the bigger victim just cannot recognize that there are some situations which are complex and where we need to figure things out. And so when it comes to abortion, they say, well, women have also been oppressed and abortion is something that can help them. So we kind of have to ignore the innocent child who is also you know, a victim here. And it's really just a battle of who is the bigger victim or who is the more politically convenient people to side with. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of complicated stuff behind it. But I, I really do think that ultimately the pro-life position says that abortion is not good for either. It actually recognizes that women have been mistreated and are still mistreated in many ways that don't affect men so much. You know, I could easily point to ways where or situations in which women are the primary victims in society. You don't have to deny that. But the reality is that when you actually look at the evidence, abortion is harmful not only to the child, but also to the woman. And so we can actually have a perspective that recognizes the vulnerability of both groups and actually tries to protect both of them. And I think the pro-life perspective at its best is actually able to do that. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, you're right on the left. I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a civil war in the left. Well, maybe it's it's but within the far left at least, as you say, they pick the bigger victim. That's why they're struggling with it. Jewish people being a minority as well, not just the historical oppression. You know, versus a much smaller minority than Muslims in this country, but they've picked Palestine on that. So, and they've picked the woman on abortion, and they've just gone and they once they pick someone a victim group, they go in hard on that, and they right. get so vehement about it that the other group just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And and to a sort of monstrous degree with the abortion question, I would say. So, yeah, very interesting. But you mentioned, I was going to ask this later, but you mentioned Christianity there. So I am wondering how far your Christianity informs your view on pro-life. I think you were a Christian before you were pro-life. I think, is that right? Did you say that I was kind of, I was convinced of Christianity before I became pro-life, but I wasn't really engaged with it. I didn't really follow it. Um, And so... You know, there's a big thing at the moment about kind of cultural Christianity and, you know, can we have the Christian values without really believing in it and any kind of stuff. I did believe it, but I didn't really follow it. And ultimately, Christianity is a a faith that is about investing in and and following a person. So, yeah, I I wasn't really invested. And to be honest, when I when I became pro-life halfway through medical school, it had very little to do with the religious views that I did hold. Um, You know, I believed the basics of Christianity for many years before I became pro-life and I thought it was fine to be Christian and pro-choice. So really it was looking at the evidence, actually debating it. You know, when you go to university in theory, you're able to challenge your worldview, challenge your ideas and actually hear some new perspectives. And I was one of the rare people that actually 
manage to do that, <laughs> did actually manage to expose my views to challenge at university. And that was really the case. You know, I went in pro-choice and I looked at the arguments for pro-life about the ways that it affects women, about the embryology. You know, I learned embryology in the first year of med school and it became clear this was a human being. And then I just had to think, what does human equality actually mean? Because everyone says they believe in human equality. But if you actually believe that, then you have to say that every human is equal, no matter how big they are, no matter how independent they are, no matter how rich they are, no matter how able they are mentally or physically. And so for me, it was just a very simple argument in the end that we know that a human being begins at fertilization. So if we believe in human equality, that every human being is equal, then we have to believe that the baby in the womb is also equal. And if that's true, then we have to give them the same protection, the same rights, the same respect that we would to any other human being. And so for me, you know, it sounds very simple and maybe there's a trick in there, but it, I found it persuasive. I looked into all the arguments from both sides. I spent, you know, months on this thinking through. And in the end, it really was, if you believe in human equality, that has to include the human in the womb. And that's what science shows. And so that was really what persuaded me more than anything else, but also seeing what abortion involves, the effect on the women and so on. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe in equality, so I don't have to ever worry about that. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, some of my people on Twitter, mate, I mean, anyone that says, you know, lots of people aren't equal. Anyone that says bias when they mean biased, people who don't use the possessive apostrophe, I've got a whole list of, um, you know, Man City fans. I've got a whole list of people, but um, yeah, I, I do see your point. And then, the other thing about pro-life, yeah, yeah, you were, so you were nominally, you were sort of vaguely Christian before you were pro-life and I was the other way around. I was leaning always vaguely pro-life before I was, when I was only nominally Christian, some might say I still am only nominally Christian, but so it does sort of show to me that it's not necessarily tied with that. And you, and you, you've addressed, I was going to ask you as well, whether Christianity does allow abortion, but you've actually got a 14 page pamphlet on that that I didn't have time to read just before we started, but you sort of cite biblical examples that, you, that a case can be made, Christian cases, sort of against abortion, even though, of course, it's not explicitly referenced in the Bible. Am I broadly right? I think so. I mean, yeah, from even from the first century, we have documents from the early church, literally during the lifetimes of Jesus's disciples, or at least one or two of them, that say, love your neighbor, and part of loving your neighbor means not ending their life. And this includes abortion. And that's, that's how they put it, even within the lifetime of Jesus' disciples. Since then, you know, it's been absolutely unanimous. Um, but, you know, at the same time, Christians have had two responses. They've said there has to be legal protection for the child, because in the Roman Empire, the, they allowed abortion and infanticide. They said the baby in the womb and the baby outside the womb are the same kind of thing, Neither of them are persons. They're not proper, you know, <laughs> Romans. And they can be killed if, if they're inconvenient or if they cause too much trouble. It was the Christians who said both of those, we agree, are the same thing. And both of them are wrong because this is a human being made in the image of God. And so there was a great article by Louise Perry, actually, a few weeks ago. I think it was called We Are Repaganizing. And it, it talks a little bit about this. And Louise says she's still pro-choice. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know, you probably know her better than I do. I don't know her at all. <laughs> so you can um, challenge that maybe. Or, but but it, she made the point that, look, in the ancient world, 
people, I, we'll put it this way, people in the modern world talk about, you know, imposing your religious views on other people, about the impact on Christianity. We don't want to live ruled by the priests. We don't want to live in a theocracy. And I find that most of the people who say that either don't know or have never really reflected on what society was like before Christianity got involved. <laughs> you know, they had gladiator fights, they had slavery, they had infanticide, they had pederasty, where it was normal just to have sex with like 11-year-old boys and see them as your property effectively. And it was Christianity that said, actually, we are going to impose a bit of religious stuff on society, but like in the sense that it got rid of that. It, it, it invented all these hospices and hospitals, invented charities for the large part, and so on. And so Christianity had a huge impact on the world in many positive ways, even though, of course, it's made huge mistakes at times. And for me, abortion is kind of a part where, again, I think Christianity got it right. Um, it really saw that there was a, a vulnerable category of human here that needed protection. And it said, along with all the other people we're protecting, the poor, women, slaves, etc., it said the unborn child is one of those vulnerable categories and began to protect them as well. Yeah, I don't actually know Louise Perry, but I have referenced that essay. Are we or we are repaganizing uh, several times on the show? It's an excellent essay, and it did make that point. I think she, I don't know if she's pro-choice or what. She still sees herself as a feminist, which is interesting, and not a conservative. Although I think she calls herself a reactionary feminist. Last time I checked, I could be wrong. But yeah, very good points, and also love thy neighbor. Yeah, and of course, if they're in your womb, they're not even just your neighbor; they've they've moved in at that point. But um, yeah, <laughs> lots of Christian arguments for it but it's not necessarily you don't have to be a christian to be pro-life what about this question of should men speak about abortion you did another podcast where they started by saying oh, three men talking about abortion but i would i would never say something like that because one that buys into identity politics i understand it was also a joke but that buys into identity politics immediately also abortion stops men becoming fathers and also a lot of these people being killed the babies are males so i always think we do have a right to speak about it but obviously that gets you in trouble in various quarters. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think all of those are valid points. And I guess the, the straightforward answer is that this is a matter of truth and falsehood. Like what is right, what is wrong? Can we, you know, talk about that meaningfully? And if we can, then anyone can talk about that. Like we don't think with our genitals, we think with our brains. And that is what we use to reason. So if we're having a logical debate, if we're trying to determine the truth, I would hope that most people use their brains. And so men have those just as much as women do. And so I think they have a place to, to speak about this. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's a, there's a sort of more, I don't know if it's more interesting, uh, probably nothing I say is that interesting, but I'll go with it anyway. Um, men are part of the problem. And so they need to be part of the solution. So any pregnancy is half the result of the man. And the child that results from that, you know, is the father's child as well. The father had a part to play. And so they should have a say about that. But what's really interesting is that since it's become a women's issue, the idea is that by portraying it as a women's issue, you would liberate women because men are out of the picture and therefore women can do whatever they want and they're completely free. But what we've actually seen in the Western world is the opposite. Because when you legalize abortion and you make it normal, what you're saying to the man is parenthood is optional. It's optional for her and it's also optional for you. 
So you don't have to do anything if you don't want to. So what the man can now say is, it's your body, your choice, your responsibility, and your problem. And I'm getting out of here. If motherhood's op optional for you, then fatherhood is optional for me. And so the man walks away. He can earn as much money as he wants. He can go out every night. He can have all the friendships, all the relationships he wants. He can do anything he wants with no consequences after getting someone pregnant. But that is not true for the woman because the woman has to pick up the pieces and deal with the consequences. She's the one that has to have the abortion or has to have the baby by herself and invest all the money, the time, the emotional resources, the relational resources, the physical resources. All of that is done by the woman. And so what economists have shown is that since abortion was legalized, Instead of liberating women in terms of their time, in terms of their, you know, their ability to earn money and do whatever they want, it was actually women who went into poverty because the men abandoned them, single motherhood increased, and therefore it was the women and the children who went into poverty as a result. And so this idea that abortion was supposed to eliminate single motherhood and liberate women has actually turned out to be the opposite. It's liberated men and has actually trapped women in single motherhood and poverty and all those difficulties that are associated with them. And so ultimately men need to be part of this because only when men and women work together for our common problems do we actually find solutions and actually help both of them to flourish. I think when you categorize society and divide them into men and women, and they just fundamentally have different interests and they have to work on their own teams for their own interests, I think we've seen the results of that, that feminism has been a disaster. Women are no happier than they were 50 years ago on average. They're actually much less happy because of all the mental health difficulties. And that, I think, is what happens when you divide society and you encourage the different teams to fight for their own interests rather than working together. Yes, very interesting. Although you're selling that lack of responsibility to me a bit too much, I'm starting to think, actually... Um, you know, being pro-life is really feminist now. And actually, maybe I want the freedom. <laughs> I was like, hang on, no responsibility. I like that. But um, I'm being silly, of course. But um, yeah, I, I do agree with your point about men and women need to come together. Although I said at a recent debate on uh, Andrew Tate, actually, I was saying how men are sort of not ready. I said men were like uh, Germany after the First World War, where we sort of feel betrayed and uh, humiliated and we're not quite ready to come to the negotiating table yet. <laughs> but that's a kind of wider question about that's kind of a red pill versus tradcon thing. And I'm sure you'd have criticisms of the red pill side and probably be more tradcom. But, but um, what about this question of, it is a different question, but it's about the UK versus the US, which the pro-life movement is basically hated in the UK for some reason. It's, and it's, it's just a sort of knee-jerk reaction at this point, to the point where we see things like Isabel Vaughan Spruce being arrested for praying in her head near an abortion facility. And people normally on my side of things will defend this arrest and they'll say, well, it's, she's in a buffer zone. I'm like, oh, a buffer zone? It's just, that's just something that's been made up two seconds ago. What are you on about a buffer zone? Because not only is it a free speech and free thought issue, I've got people who normally side with free speech, by the way, you know, defending this. But because they are so vehemently anti, they're sort of uh, pro-abortion, so vehemently, they, they, they go crazy on this issue and they want people arrested for praying in their heads. So that's just one example. Whereas in the US, of course, they're far more open to the pro-life position. It's, you know, it's, it's very fiercely contested there. 
So firstly, yeah, I've got I've got follow up. What about that? The difference between the UK and US? Yeah, I think I mean there is a huge difference. So when you look at opinion polls in most of Europe, it's you know generally like twenty percent pro life, eighty percent pro choice. In the UK, it's you know significantly worse than that. It's like seven percent pro life. Um, and so we really are, you know, a tiny minority in this country, whereas in the US, it's pretty much 50-50, or at least was until Roe v. Wade was overturned and there was a big media campaign. Um, so, yeah, I mean, massive differences. And I think the tendency in the UK is to be very allergic to anything in the US. You know, we see them as, you know, nasty Republicans who want to kill children with guns, but then want to save them before birth. They don't care about the children after birth. They won't give them any state money. They won't give them any health care, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, and to be honest, you even hear this from pro-life Christians in the UK. They, they say, you know, all those American pro-lifers, they don't really care about these kids and about those women. They just care before birth. Now, the reality is that in the US, they have 3,000 pregnancy centers whose job it is is solely to serve women in those situations, and then to serve their child along with them. These are almost entirely privately funded. They're all volunteer-based. They're privately funded. They get almost no state funding. They have, I think, about 30 volunteers on average each, plus five paid staff. And of course, all of those salaries are coming from donor money. And so when you think about this, you have 3,000 of those centers across the US. That is a huge investment of resources that goes into practically serving women and children before birth and after birth at huge cost to the people giving that money and giving that time. When you compare that with the abortion providers in the US who get millions of public funds and do almost nothing to serve women in those situations, there's a huge contrast. But there's also a huge contrast with people in the UK, even Christians in the UK, who criticize the American Christians for supposedly being so harsh and callous and just judgmental and not helping women and children. The Americans have 3,000 of those centers with huge money going into them out of people's own wallets and all that time investment as well. The UK has those, but I would guess maybe around 100. I don't know, honestly, maybe more, but definitely nowhere near 3,000 and nowhere near the level of investment of time and money going into them. And so ultimately, I think we have a lot to learn from the US, both in terms of really giving it a good go and advocating for women and children together, but also in terms of practically supporting them. I think when it comes to charitable giving, when it comes to actually looking after women and children those nasty, mean Republicans in the US actually do a far better job than anyone in the UK. And so I think we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah, interesting. And you've answered one of my other questions as well about the they don't care about the baby once it's alive, which is, is a claim they always make. So you've answered that very well. But there's a, there's a follow-up question about the US, which is I've now seen people saying, even on the conservative side, saying, you know, tone down your rhetoric on abortion because it's a losing election issue. You know, these states that make it very hard now to get an abortion, okay, we won Roe versus Wade, they'll say, but actually for voters, you're losing vote. And there was that thing with one of the elections, wasn't there, with, where they said, look, this is the people, Democrats have come out, people have come out to vote Democrat because of the perceived extremity of the new overturning of Roe versus Wade. So pragmatically, can you overdo the pro-life position and actually end up with a load of Democrats? 
So I think it's an interesting question, and I think we're kidding ourselves if we pretend that abortion hasn't been a part of the Democrat victories recently. I think it has. But I think what we've also seen is that it's not so much that you need to avoid abortion, because that is what is causing these victories for the Democrats. The Republicans are running away from it. They're scared of it. They're letting the Democrats determine the narrative, and they're not doing anything in response. So of course, any votes on abortion are going to go to the Democrats because the Republicans are not really trying in many places to actually message, set the narrative, campaign on it. What they found is that when they do campaign on it, when they show that the Democrats support abortion up to birth and even during birth for any reason at all, people actually do begin to change their minds. And I think when you see examples of this done well, it actually works well. So people like Ron DeSantis, who got like a record victory in Florida, he talks about abortion all the time, but he talks about it well, he's educated, and he knows what to say. And so he won a landslide victory in a state that was, you know, 20 years ago, it was determining the elections. He's like, <laughs> like, Florida is deep, deep red now, because he has done well, and he knows how to message. There are other governors like Brian Kemp in Georgia, who also won huge victories being pro-life in a swing state, as Georgia now is, because they know how to talk about this to set the narrative and how to actually take the fight to the other side. So I think in the UK, it's similar. Now, again, I'm not going to kid ourselves. I don't think there's this like secret pro-life majority that if we could just speak to them and unlock their votes, you know, you'd get a landslide for a pro-life party in the UK. But I do think the, the average person in the UK thinks that abortion is a bad thing, that it would be better if fewer women felt they needed to have one, and that it would be good if we could try and value both lives together to think about what are the struggles that mothers actually face and how can we tackle those. And I think if someone came out and said, you know, someone like Kate Forbes, who's in a left-wing party who gets all the media abusing them and against them, comes out and says, look, I'm actually pro-life, I think this is wrong, I'm against it, but I think this is what we actually need in this country is better support for women, more moderate abortion laws that don't allow abortion up to six months as the UK currently does, that doesn't allow abortion up to birth for disabled children as the UK currently does, who just had a clear realistic sense of where the culture is at, what women actually want, what mothers want and need, and actually fought for those policies I actually think they'd do fine in an election. I actually think they'd be likable. Um, Miriam Cates is a great example. She's pro-life. She's not really shy about it. She's in a labor seat, effectively. But because she's honest, because she actually tries to message well, because she actually tries to understand this debate and tries to talk about what women and mothers actually need, her constituents love her. She's one of the few Tories in a red seat that has even the faintest chance of retaining that seat at the next election. So I think when you speak about this issue well, you actually can win people over. Hmm. Very interesting. Yes. And a good, I mean, the, the, the uh, uh, being able to abort disabled babies up to birth is just obviously disgusting and kind of that should get people asking questions. But then also, the fact that our standard abortion law is in line, I believe, with the Netherlands should be a bit of a red flag because that nearly always means you're too liberal on something. You know, it's, <laughs> it's one of the more extreme laws in Europe. I, I mean, I, I, the last time I checked, it was much more liberal, or if you want to use the term liberal or extreme, than 
than France and Denmark and all or Belgium and all these countries. And they were sort of more like, what, 12 weeks? And we were more like, was it 24? Something like that. You can correct me. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, when you're when you're more extreme than Sweden, Denmark, and Finland and Iceland, then you're extreme. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. as simple as that. Um, right. Yeah, I think I don't know the exact, but I think Sweden is the latest of those. Uh, Iceland recently changed to twenty-two weeks. Sweden, I think, is eighteen in extreme situations. I think Denmark is still around twelve, and I think Finland is about twelve as well. So. Absolutely. At six months, you know, the baby's viable at 21 weeks now. Um, by 22 weeks, they have a decent chance of surviving. We're still having abortion for any reason, if the baby's a girl even, up to 24 weeks, or if the baby has Down syndrome or a cleft lip or a cleft palate, any time up to birth. Yeah, the cleft palate one is mad because, as you said on another podcast, very easily correctable. Um, there's a strange thing as well. Where well, by the way, on the on the nine month thing, I've heard two people on GB News, which I'm told is this right wing channel, advocate abortion <laughs> up to nine months, which is basically murder. You're just like, hey, I'm just advocating murder on the TV. It's kind of insane that that's where we are with the debate. I'm trying not to be too partisan here, but that is, I'm sure lots of people would find that extreme. But that people can just espouse that view on an allegedly right wing TV channel. Um, the other thing I just quickly add is, is there's a strange disconnect whereby I was speaking to my mom about this. It's obviously quite uncomfortable to speak to your mom about abortion, but I was saying to her, you know, surely you, you, you wouldn't have had an abortion. She's like, of course not, right? And uh, But at the same time, she'd be pro-choice for other people. So that's mm. quite interesting. People say, I'm, I would never do it, but, I, but someone else can. Are they being compassionate because they might be in different circumstances, or is that an odd moral disconnect? I think it's a very common view, to be honest. And, you know, I said earlier that, what, 7% of the UK is pro-life, but if you ask the average person, they will tell you, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's it should be used as contraception. You know, I know people who've had three, four abortions. That's totally wrong. And I think that's where the average, you know, the average person outside the sort of BBC blob, um, that's where they're at. They think abortion is a bad thing. It shouldn't be done lightly. But to be honest, part of the reason I think you have so many people with a pro-choice perspective in the UK is just a lack of awareness about what it involves, how quickly the baby develops, and the situations that abortion is normally used for. So in the UK, we keep pretty good statistics on abortion. And we know why the abortions occur, at least in broad terms. So about 1.5% of abortions are because the baby's disabled. About 0.01% or less than that, actually, is because there's a risk to the life of the mother. Um, we don't keep data on sexual violence, but in Florida they do, and they've shown it's about 0.1% of abortions. And so that leaves about 98% of abortions are because of social reasons or economic reasons. And so that is the reality of abortion on demand, that overwhelmingly they're not for those sort of extreme exceptional situations, therefore... A variety of things, right? Like, I don't feel I can afford another child. I'm not in the right relationship. I just don't want another baby. I have too many, you know, I, I've completed my family. It's not the right time in my career, etc. And I think most people just don't realize that these are what 98% of abortions are for. And so even if they did, they might still say they're pro-choice. You know, ultimately, people don't like the government telling them what to do in general. <laughs> um, and they often, I think, just feel that it's the, the compassionate thing. They say, okay, yeah, I'm against abortion. I, I think it's wrong, but 
I really don't think that it should be illegal. I think that the woman should have that choice. And I think ultimately it's because they think it's compassionate and they think that the only option is, you know, either you allow abortion or you're like a secret service going around each house, knocking on doors, locking women up for, you know, potentially having a miscarriage or having an abortion or whatever. And I think they just don't realize that actually abortion is harmful to women, that it's causing more problems, that you can have a judicial system that does prohibit abortion while at the same time being compassionate on women and recognizing that there might be extenuating circumstances, and that it's not just this sort of, these two polarized options. I think most people just don't realize that, that you can have a a compassionate culture that protects women, that supports women, that wants to uphold their value and and look after them and do the right thing for them while at the same time protecting their child's life i think most people just don't know that you can do that and so naturally move towards the pro-choice side you know you say people don't like the government telling them what to do i wish that was true although we saw during covid the people loved it and they thought that was compassion to to follow the government slavishly and, and give up all your rights so slight quibble there but no i, yeah. I agree i i mean i yeah it's I think it's really compartmentalized. I think there are areas where people are like, government, get out of here. And then, as you say, like, I mean, I, to be honest, I was surprised at how compliant the public, well, how compliant the public were in opinion polls. <laughs> I don't think they were that compliant in practice. Right. Um, I, but I think if, you know, if there was a wider enforcement against it, I think the public would have turned more so. I think the reason they didn't turn against the lockdown and stuff was because they knew that, the chances were you could get away with breaking the rules and you would be fine. Very kind of English take on it. Yeah. <laughs> if it had gone full Chinese, would it, would it rebel. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and you, I mean, I've heard you say only about hundred hundred abortions a year because the woman's life is at risk. And I thought I'd heard you say mental health is cited 98% of the time on the form that you're given in the UK. Although there you sort of said it was 98% more general social causes, but isn't it all mental health that's cited? Yeah, so in the the reason for that is in the UK, we actually don't have legal abortion on demand. We only have abortion if your life is at risk, if the child has a disability, or if the pregnancy would affect the physical or mental health of the mother or other children in the family. And so originally in 1967, the intention was that, you know, the doctor, the woman would go and see two doctors, one of whom should be a psychiatrist, and they would do a really thorough analysis of should this woman have an abortion because it's going to really have a bad effect on her mental health if she keeps the baby and originally the law was applied like that in many cases so you know in the 70s you had not the majority but a decent proportion of women were denied abortions by the doctors because they said i don't think this is going to be good for your mental health so it's not legal but over time it just became more and more liberal in practice to the point where Basically, the the academics and all the abortion advocates and many other people openly say, if you go to a doctor and you say, I want a baby boy, having a baby girl would affect my mental health and would cause me emotional problems, you can have an abortion. So even now on paper, you still have to have an abortion for mental health reasons, but you can say absolutely anything and it's effectively the woman's choice. The woman, you know, the psychiatrist or the GP doesn't determine what is best for the mental health. 
if a woman just says an abortion is going to be good for my mental health, she can give any sort of reason for that. And the doctor effectively has to say, or you at least usually does say, you're right, you're the person who's in charge here and, and we'll do it. So yeah, on paper, 98% are for mental health reasons, but the evidence shows that abortion is bad for a woman's mental health. So it can't really be taken that seriously. And so in practice, you basically have abortion on demand and they're all labeled as mental health. Fascinating that, yeah. I mean, and it also reminds me again of this sort of weird flexibility of it. I knew someone who had an abortion was just joking about it, wasn't that bothered. Maybe they secretly were, they didn't seem to be bothered at all. Then later they did have a family. It's so strange to me that it depends on the thing you mentioned earlier, I've completed my family or this one's going to affect my mental health. This one won't though. It seems to be so whimsical. It kind of disturbs me. Maybe it's because, and this is one of, perhaps one of my misogynist theories, I've heard it said that men have a more abstract sense of reasoning, whereas women's is more contingent because evolutionarily it's had to be that way. I don't know if you believe in that, but it's interesting that it's so flexible, basically depending on how the woman feels. Maybe it's part of our feelings society because where do you think ethically there has to be an absolute standard if we think it's a life if we don't if we think it's legal if it's not we seem to just be all over the place based on sort of feelings what do you think to that i think so i mean yeah like i say i think at the core of it is this idea that abortion is compassionate and that it's good for the woman and and therefore you know in a culture that you know Ultimately, like the the classical sources were right about a lot of things. Like two thousand years ago, or longer than that, they said that there are such there's such a thing as virtues, kindness, compassion, bravery, etc. But there's there is such a thing as an excess of them. You know, too much kindness, basically. You know, in the in the simple case in the home, gets you bratty kids who bully other children and cause a lot of misery to other kids' lives too much bravery or, you know, too much testosterone, if you want to put it another way, like will lead to too much aggression, wars fought over stupid things. Those are the excesses that men are more prone to. And I really, you know, I think it's just a, a, a clear fact that unless you balance things, compassion, human rights, abstract thinking, kindness, whatever, you have to get these in the right proportions or else it causes huge harm. And I think where our culture has kind of gone wrong is that we sort of haven't realized. We just think like the more compassion, the better, the more kindness, the better. And of course, these are good things. We should all be compassionate. We should all be kind people. And we should err on the side of those in any doubt. But when you use those completely uncritically without any boundaries, it causes misery. Um, and so ultimately, you know, we see this the most when there's a conflict of interests between two different people. The, suppose you have two different people, they want different things. Well, if you just think I'm going to pick a side and just be as compassionate as possible towards that one side, you inevitably exclude the interests and what's best for the other person and you cause a great amount of harm. And so I think that's what we have in the case of abortion is, of course, compassion is a good thing. But when you apply it exclusively or you apply it selectively and you don't have any sort of limits or rigorous thinking around that, then of course it will cause significant harm. And I think that's what we have in the case of abortion. Yeah. And I just have to address inevitably this question about rape because otherwise people will be screaming. Why haven't you mentioned that? I'm not our audience really. They're not the kind of people that scream things like that at the, at the podcast. But 
probably have to address it. You've alluded very briefly to it on this podcast, and I, the stat here you had is that um, there was recent data from Florida that suggests around 0.14% of abortions are due to rapes. So it's, a, it's a tiny proportion, but still important. And of course, people like Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg were quite controversially uh, against abortion, even in cases of rape. The way he put it was he supports the teaching of the Catholic Church. Other people less so. If I look at it myself as a sort of layman on this, this and basically all subjects, I, I would think if, if we are saying abortion is killing a baby, it's very hard to justify it. Two wrongs don't make a right on a, on a very basic level. How can you've had the heinous crime of rape? How can you have another heinous crime of murder? That said, I personally don't think I would have the heart to say to a woman who's been raped where well, you have to have the baby. I just Personally, maybe that's a weakness for me, but I don't know if I would be able to actually do that. So that would be my take. But you said something very different because you've researched it so much. You said, the more I've researched this area, hearing the testimonies of women and looking at the empirical evidence, the more I've come to believe that from a medical perspective, abortion will not help to heal the trauma, meaning rape in this case. In fact, it can make it worse. By contrast, pregnancy will not compound the trauma in the long term. So your case is that there'll be a short-term relief if you got an abortion having been raped, but in the long term, actually, that would that would not help. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I think part of the difficulty here is there there is such a thing as the truth and what the evidence shows, but how you communicate that and how easy it is to communicate that is a totally separate matter. And this is why so often in politics, you know, the politicians will will challenge each other, or the BBC hosts will say, "Well, I, I challenge you to look in the face of this, you know." specific person and tell them that and of course you know it might be um it might be that the politician is absolutely correct but that doesn't make it easy to explain that in a compassionate and meaningful way to any given person and so i think what we have here is the challenge that yes you know when you think through the pro-life perspective as i said at the start every human being is equal and that means that no matter how you were conceived, you still have the same fundamental rights as anyone else. You know, I have friends who were conceived in rape and they say, well, what about me? Am I less valuable? Do I have fewer rights? Why can't people kill me now? Why couldn't my mother kill me now if I suddenly started causing her distress? If my mother looks at me one day and decides that I have the same face as the person who abused her, does that mean that she can end my life just because it's causing her all that mental difficulty. And obviously any of us would say, no, of course not, because this is a human being. And I think we have to say the same when the child is in the womb. That's just what it means to really believe in human equality and not to compromise because of whatever might make us popular or, or might seem convenient. If we believe in the truth, if we believe in facts, if we believe in principles, then we have to follow them even if it makes life inconvenient for us. Now, I think part of the reason we challenge, you know, that I explained is part of the reason we find this difficult is it's not easy. And, you know, plenty of people would not believe me if they're in that situation. You know, if I said to a woman in that situation, just have the baby, it would actually be better for you. Of course, she's going to struggle to believe me. And I haven't said it very compassionately there. And it's, it's difficult to see in that moment. But the reality is that when you do give women the time and the support and the care, you don't even necessarily have to tell them what other people said. You just have to let them see it for themselves. And this is what has been shown in the research. So 
is a study of 200 women uh, all became pregnant as a result of rape or incest, which of course is usually rape as well. And most of them had the baby, some of them had abortions. Now, the ones who had abortions often said that it was the wrong decision. They said it, I, all it did was add a second victim to the crime and a second trauma to the victim. It made things worse for me as the woman, and then it added the child as a second victim who was completely innocent. And they said that's all it achieved. It didn't do anything. I'm still a victim of rape. I still suffer from that trauma. So the problem was not the pregnancy. The problem was the abuse that I suffered. Some of the women who had abortions said it was the right decision, but by no means all of them. A lot of them said it was the wrong decision. When you contrast that with women who had the babies, they said in every single case, this was the right decision. And in many cases, it was the only thing that helped me to recover. Because when I was going through that, all I had was despair and darkness and difficulty and pain. And the one thing that gave me light in that darkness or hope in, in all of that suffering was the fact that I had a baby to care for who gave me meaning, a baby that I could fight for, and a baby that showed that I could be victorious and overcome the suffering that I'd been through. And I was a better person than the person who did this to me. Now, again, sometimes that message makes total sense to people, sometimes it doesn't. But I recently spoke to a, in another country, I was speaking to leaders from a pretty far left progressive political party about this topic. And I kind of expected that they would hate me after asking this question and I gave my answer. I thought there's no way they're gonna like me. This is the question that always you know, is, is the most challenging. And at the end of that, someone came up to me who's a leader in that party, who's responsible for women and children in that party. And she, the first thing she said to me was, I believe everything you said about rape and I was kind of taken aback and I said, well, why is that? And she said, because I went through it myself. She said, I was the victim of rape by my husband. And this was in a country where marital rape is not really accepted very broadly as a concept. So particularly sort of um, vulnerable as someone whose, whose abuse was not really recognized so much. Um, she said, I was raped by my husband. I became pregnant and I had the baby. And if I had not had the baby, who knows where I would be? I might be on drugs, I might be you know, homeless, whatever. I do not know what I would have done with my life. But because I had the baby, that baby gave me something to fight for. And the only reason I am now in politics, fighting for women and children and making something of my life is because that baby saved me and gave me something to fight for. And so after, you know, several years of giving this answer and sharing those stories, that was when it particularly hit home for me that this is not just theoretical. This is not just me as a dude who's never gone through this, telling people and assuring them that this is what women actually say. At that point, it really hit home. And she told me with her own mouth, absolutely, this is absolutely correct. This is what I experienced. And actually the baby, however counterintuitive it is, that baby is the thing that got me through this. And at this point, all I can say is, you don't have to listen to me, listen to women like her, because those stories tend to point much more towards life than they do towards abortion as the answer. Mm, fascinating. And, and when it comes to um, abortion, not from rape, but just sort of standard, 
you've actually said something quite, slightly different to that. You said women don't regret abortion, but they also don't regret when it's denied. They basically adapt to whichever one they've chosen to do. Is that right? It is, yeah. So, um, so the studies show that gen- in general, when people make decisions, they don't regret them. And that's just the psychological bias they have because regret is a painful thing to process and it's easier to just avoid it by reassuring ourselves that we did the right thing. Now, especially with sort of consequential decisions like abortion, where if you admit to regretting it, you're going against the entire culture, you're going against this decision that everyone has constantly told you was a valid decision, was an empowering decision, that it was the right decision. And you're usually or often coming to grips with what the abortion was, that you lost your child. And so it's inevitable that it's very, very difficult for anyone to say they regret it because it's such a painful thing to regret. And so the reality is, yeah, people come to terms with with things. And therefore, even though abortion does lead to worse mental health outcomes, and even though a large number of women say they have feelings of regret, I think even the majority maybe say that they have feelings of regret. If you ask them if they made the right decision or not, the large majority will say, yeah, I made the right decision. But then interestingly, as you point out, the same is true of women who were refused abortions. So this was a study from the last 10 years in the US where women went to abortion clinics to get abortions. They were told you're too far along in your pregnancy, you can't have one. And what the researchers found was that firstly, 70% of them had the baby. They didn't have an illegal abortion. They didn't go to another state. And so that shows that pro-life laws do work. If you tell women they can't have an abortion, most of them don't get an abortion. They have the baby. So the researcher said, well, okay, we admit that, but all of these women are going to have lives that are ruined as a result. They're going to have so much pain and difficulty because of the baby. And they said, we were surprised to find this was not the case. At five years later, we interviewed these women who had the baby after being denied an abortion, and we asked them, do you wish you could still have had an abortion? And 98% of them said no. They said, I'm glad I have my baby. I've come to terms with it. I do not wish I could still have an abortion. And so ultimately what this shows is that women are resilient. They are strong. They can do things even when they're put in challenging situations. And that ultimately what is needed in those situations is not abortion, but is time and support and compassionate care. Yeah, and it might be the case that lots of things that are good for us uh not particularly sorry someone just decided to start drilling at the end of the podcast in my building in this crucial moment but um a lot of people there may be things that are hard but but good for us so i suppose even marriage having children and i, I haven't done any of them they look too hard but um lots of things that, that look difficult having a baby you didn't think you wanted but it may actually be better for you long term that's probably true of many things um i wanted to actually this just to throw in it near the end so abortion, I think anyone who looks into the actual procedure will find it's absolutely horrific. And of course, many people would say the same about other things in our culture, factory farming, and there's lots of things we could say that we do that are horrific. But does our intuitively, brutally pragmatic acceptance of abortion in the society, because clearly it has been accepted due to the numbers of abortions that are taking place and the general societal attitudes towards it that we've discussed, does that in some way take precedence over the strict ethics you know much of conservatism is a kind of inductive reasoning we notice oh we seem to do this 
this is what we do. Therefore, there must be something behind it. Do, you know, does does that undermine some of your ethical reasoning? The fact that we seem to just have accepted it. Um, so I think. I think ultimately we have to be people of principle and there are different ways that you can compromise and some compromises are okay. Some compromises are not. So, you know, as a political matter, if you say, you know, 90, 95% of people in this country are pro-choice. So we're clearly never going to be able to pass a law that protects unborn children fully anytime soon. But would you want to do a law that, you know, limits abortion to 12 weeks that would save a small percentage of children? I would say, yeah, you know, political reality is a reality and there's no point passing a law that no one will agree with and that will just get overturned the next time there's an election. So I think political compromise in that sense is normal and is fine. But I think when it comes to other kinds of compromise where you basically give up your principles for something else, I think is, is quite different. Um, and in particular, I think what you're asking about is like, could, could we sort of give up the human rights principles and the ethical arguments for some sort of pragmatic gain? You know, and, and there are certain arguments for abortion which are kind of like that. Like, you know, if we don't have, if we if we don't have abortion, we'll have all these babies, they'll cost the economy and so on. And there'll be all these sorts of problems. We might have to pay more welfare and conservatives don't like that, that kind of thing. And for me, the question is, firstly, is that true? And in fact, when you look at the evidence, abortion causes ripple effects throughout society. We have huge problems from underpopulation. We have massive economic problems, problems with the health and social care system because we don't have enough kids. For many people, they consider the immigration that has been kind of used as a solution to that problem. They consider that a bad thing. There are many ways that abortion has caused economic difficulties. It's caused a huge increase in single motherhood and family breakdown, which causes massive problems for the economy and for families, for women, for children. It's caused all these mental health problems with suicide, anxiety, drug abuse, and so on. So ultimately, there's sort of no argument for abortion. You know, the principled arguments are against it and the pragmatic arguments are against it as well. And so... In that sense, everything is aligned. The only thing that is not aligned is the people in power and public opinion. And so, yeah, we have to take that into account. You know, when we're making laws, you can't just ignore public opinion because you'll get voted out and then it will go back to the way it was and you won't have achieved anything. And so we always have to take that into account and we have to do the hard work of changing minds, both in positions of influence and among the general public. And that's a long-term project. So there's no short-term solution to this. But if you ask me, you know, should we just give up on the, you know, like they're talking about in the US, should we just give up on the pro-life stuff because it's losing us elections and that kind of thing? The answer for me is absolutely not. This is a basic human right. And what are we actually fighting for if not the most basic human rights? <laughs> like, If we have a society that, you know, has better tax system and that sort of thing, but we're still killing one in four babies in the womb, is that a society that we should fight for? Is that something that we should conserve? That to me is just not worth conserving. I think we have to think what are our priorities. And for me, the priorities are the most basic human rights, fundamentally the right to life. And then after that, the rights to 
freedom of thought and freedom of speech, the things that make for a basic level of respect and freedom within a, a liberal democratic society. And so, as I said, when we speak about these things well, we can have our cake and eat it. We can fight for the unborn, we can fight for women, we can fight for society, and we can win elections. Because when we actually take this seriously and educate ourselves and actually try, then actually everything aligns well and we can actually... Sorry, I've said actually I very cringe way, way too many times. <laughs> but we can we can ultimately be successful. We can actually win people over. So sorry for the cringe, but I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it was fine. Um, yeah, no, okay, you made the case very well, but you've just said there is no argument for pro-choice. So you might have you might have usurped my question here or preempted it. But I was going to say, what's the most difficult pro-choice, as they call it, argument that you've had to encounter? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of in, ter yeah, in terms of actually giving the answer, I think it would be the question on rape because it's such a horrendously difficult question to answer in a convincing way, even if the facts are on your side. And the hardest questions to answer are always those questions which are difficult even when you have the facts <laughs> because then you have to have something in addition to the facts, which is always a challenge. Um, the other one that has been challenging historically has been this practical argument that if you ban abortion, women will just get dangerous backstreet abortions and they'll all die as a result. And so because that was a, a challenging argument, I made it my research focus for the last few years. And I decided to actually investigate, is this true? Is it the case that when you ban abortion, loads of women die, or when you legalize abortion, all the women stop dying? And what I found was kind of surprising is that that's not really the case. So I haven't found a single country that has banned abortion and had an increase in women being hospitalized or dying. I haven't found a single country where there's been legalization of abortion and they've had a massive drop in the number of women dying. What actually happens is that if you have a good healthcare system like Malta or Poland, and you have no abortion legal, like in Malta, and 99% abandoned in Poland, women do not die of abortion. In fact, those two countries have the lowest maternal mortality of any country in the world. By contrast, if you have a country that has legal abortion, but they have a bad healthcare system, like India, Ethiopia, Rwanda, South Africa, these countries still have tons of women dying from unsafe abortions, because they don't have the emergency services available if a woman has a complication. And so, yeah, so it's, it's not the most principled of arguments, but it is a common one, especially in other parts of the world. They say, well, what about all these women who are going to die? Don't you care about those women? The reality is when you look at the empirical evidence, it doesn't actually support that line of thinking at all. And so I used to find that argument challenging. I then found the evidence and it's not so challenging anymore. So... I, I regret to say that I can't really have much nuance on this. I still just don't think there are any good arguments for abortion at all. And so I'm quite happily and confidently pro-life. All right. But you're not that confident that you're going to I mean, necessarily win this. I mean, it must be quite tough to make this your sort of life's work or you know, a large chunk of it. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, as an academic, it's, you know, you always get threats, get plenty of threats on Twitter, get people who do all sorts of creepy things, right? I had a, my first national newspaper hit piece on me a few months ago. Oh, um, the club. Indeed. <laughs> um, 
and it's not nice. I mean, I'm, I'm probably a bit more resilient than many people. Like I've always been a bit contrarian and not cared that much what people think. But when it comes to people actually threatening you or, you know, trying to ruin your life, trying to ruin your family's life, it does hit home. It makes it hard. But as I said before, what matters is that we fight for the things we believe in. And if we're not doing that, then what's our life for? We're wasting our time. And just briefly on that, to end on, do you think we can win the larger culture war? I mean, I'm assuming we're on the same side, which I'm not sure about because of some of your lefty opinions, but let's say we are, and we probably broadly are. You know, how do we, I often ask people how we win this, uh, and assuming it is a war, how do we win, moving beyond just the abortion question, how do we win the larger culture war? It's a great question. And to be honest, I don't know. I mean, it, it looks bleak and it's it's nice to always say, you know, I'm hopeful and we can win as long as we just do these things. But, you know, it, history doesn't always go the way that we want it to. You know, most of history has been pretty depressing and bleak and has been crap for people who try to do the right thing. I mean, the best person who ever lived, Jesus, was crucified in the end. And so... It, it might not be that it's easily winnable, but I think at the very start, I think one of the core things is protecting the basic space to um, to voice opinions and to share opinions. That would be both on tech platforms, in schools, in the public sphere. Then I think it's about encouraging people to think properly so that they don't just go on emotions or what's convenient or what's popular, but people are actually encouraged that the truth is important and we should actually have debates to try and figure out what's true. And then finally, I think a lot of it, um, as some politicians have finally started to realize 13 years into a conservative government, is to figure out what's, what our kids are being indoctrinated with in schools. And so absolutely, you know, we have to think, where are the young people being influenced online in schools by their parents? And how can we equip parents? How can we equip schools with good material that is convincing so that they actually get to hear both sides. And I hope that if people actually do get to hear both sides, eventually we should win because we have the truth on our side. All right. And of course, Jesus did come back. Let's, uh, let's remember. So it wasn't, wasn't hopeless in the end, even though he was crucified. So that, that's crucial to get in. <laughs> exactly. But, um, where can people find you, Callum? Uh, so I'm quite active on uh, I should say in BBC fashion, X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, so that's Dr. Dr. Callum Miller on Twitter. Uh, I'm also have my own website. Callumsblog.com has a whole bunch of stuff. It has over a hundred questions on abortion. So if anyone has extra questions that I haven't answered, they have a ton of stuff on that website with all the scientific references, etc. So Callumsblog.com has a lot of extra information. And I'm always happy to do talks or podcasts or even debates. Uh, if there's anyone up for debating, usually not, sadly, but <laughs> I'm happy to do it if people are up for it. So yeah, please get in touch and I'll be happy to help. And Callum is one L, crucially, because a lot of people put two L's in Callum, but you're a bit of a renegade in that way as well. Indeed. I've been a rebel since birth or since conception, I guess. So <laughs> indeed. All right. Brilliant. Thanks so much for doing the show. Thank you. All right. That was Dr. Callum Miller. Very interesting episode, I thought. He certainly makes his case very well on a very serious topic. Some might say I should have challenged him more. I don't know, but it's my podcast and I'll do what I want. And if you want to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon. You can leave me a digital coffee. It's not a real coffee, guys. It's just a donation and you can leave a comment and it's all much appreciated. 
buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon or you can go to my substack nickdixon.substack.com and it's five pounds a month to subscribe and get all my articles and updates so buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon nickdixon.substack.com and we'll see you again next week